Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Acts chapter 8 as we look at the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. Uh, one thing I'm learning about Bryant, uh, the more I work with him and serve with him, is, is that dude's got a big sweet tooth. If you want to know your way into his life, buy him some sprees, buy him something sugary, get, get him something sweet. His wife may argue, but he, he's got a big sweet tooth. Now, I, I, I don't consider myself to have a really big sweet tooth. I'm not a big dessert guy, but when I was a kid, I, I loved desserts like ice cream and gummy bears. That, that was what I wanted, but it's not always the dessert that was offered in a lot of the meals that I attended and ate and shared with my family, family reunions, those types of things. Usually, uh, they were desserts like pecan, pecan or pecan, I don't know what, what word it is, that nut pie type thing, and, and um, I was never into that. But then another one that was pretty common was cheesecake. And as a kid, cheesecake just seemed so dull, it seemed so boring. It was a grown-up dessert that I had no interest in. And so I lived all my life turning cheesecake down, never even trying it, and I got a little older, and one time I joined a team who was doing some camp ministries in different university settings in different cities around the country, and I was traveling with this team, conducting these sports and rec camps for kids, and, and there was one guy on my team named Gabe, and Gabe, every week, would talk about a place called the Cheesecake Factory, and I told him, look, dude, every time you talk about the Cheesecake Factory, I, uh, I disengage because that's not my flavor. I'm not a cheesecake guy. And he looks at me and says, Andrew, that's just because you haven't gone there and you haven't tasted it. And I said, well, I probably never will. He said, I'm going to convince you to go to the Cheesecake Factory one day with me. And every week he would ask me to go and every week I would turn him down. And, and it got to the end of the summer. The end of the summer, we found ourselves in Baltimore, Maryland, and we were right across the street from a Cheesecake Factory. And he said, okay, Andrew, now's the time we're going. You're not saying no. And for some reason, I caved, I compromised my principles, and I went with him to the Cheesecake Factory. We walked into this place. I don't know if you've ever been to this kind of restaurant, but it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, it's a big place, big tables, big plates, big silverware, big menus. Uh, didn't feel like it was designed for a guy like me. It was designed more for like Goliath and that type of uh, market uh, share. And, and I walk in, everything's just overwhelming. And I sit down, they bring this menu that weighed about 16 pounds, and I open it up, and just overwhelmed by all the options and all the food items. And I was looking for the cheesecake, and the cheesecake wasn't even to be found in this menu. And I was like, well, I thought this was the Cheesecake Factory. What's, all, what's crispy orange chicken? What's that doing here? And, and they said, well, this is the dinner menu. We've got a whole other menu for the cheesecake. And I said, you've got to be kidding. And so we had our meal, and sure enough, she brings a whole other menu for the cheesecake. And she drops it in my lap or on my table, and I look at this menu and just... Again, just overwhelmed, paralysis, by, uh, paralysis of analysis. I'm looking at all these options, and I don't know what to decide. And, but then my eyes fall on something called the chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake. Now, that's something my mind can wrap around. That's something my heart can kind of beat towards. And so I uh, put an order for a slice of chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake. Now, the waitress brought to my table, she, she did not bring a little slice of cheesecake. What she brought was a chunk of cheesecake. She brought a wedge of cheesecake. I mean, a huge slice. It was just a massive piece of cheesecake. And I'm sitting there looking at it. My eyes are wide. I'm kind of taken aback by the size of this piece. And I said, all right, let's dive in. So I'll take my fork and I just kind of put it on top. And at that moment, I didn't even have to work very hard. Uh, I let gravity just kind of do the work. I just put the fork on top of the cheesecake and it just kind of fell through it like a lightsaber just burning through that cheesecake. And and it falls through it, and I detach that first piece, and I pull it up to my mouth. And... <laughs> I 
the moment that cheesecake touched my mouth, everything changed. I mean, it's subtly sweet flavor and silky smooth texture just kind of danced on my tongue and my eyes filled with tears and there was music playing in my head and my, it was just an amazing moment. It was so good. I left that place with my brother-in-law, who is now my brother-in-law, a guy named Gabe, and we leave the restaurant, and, and I join him in advocating for the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> he didn't even have to ask me. We get in the cab to go home, and I'm talking to the cab driver. Hey, have you been to this place? <laughs> have you ever tried their cheesecake? It's phenomenal. You got to try it. Just instinctively, instinctively advocating for that. I, mean, I just felt so much pleasure, so much joy in that moment that I wanted other people to come and, and to experience that pleasure and to experience that joy as well. It's not unlike what C.S. Lewis described in, in that quote we mentioned last week about how a person's joy is brought to completion when it is shared with others. A person's pleasure is deepened when other people come to share in that pleasure and they experience a very similar joy and a very similar pleasure. This is what C.S. Lewis was saying. I mentioned part of it last week. I'll share the rest of it tonight. He says, you know, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Our joy is brought to completion when it is expressed and when it is participated in. I think that's something like what Isaiah experienced at the end of Isaiah chapter 6. The story we looked at last week. We kicked off, started this new series on our vision and our values. And we started with catching a vision of God. And we looked in on Isaiah's experience with God. He's in the temple and there's that incredible moment. He looks up and he sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And he sees the train of his robe just filling the temple and the seraphim, worshiping God in heaven, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. And the, at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, every, everything began to shake. And, and then Isaiah recognizes there's a big difference between God and him, between the creator and him, a creature. And so he cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. And so he's thinking, I'm done. I can't stand in the presence of this holy, glorious God unless something changes but then you know how the story unfolds, right? You know that God in his grace dispatched one of these seraphim and taking from the altar of sacrifice a burning coal. And where did he place that coal? He placed that coal on Isaiah's lips. And as soon as those coals touched his mouth, everything changed. He heard the gospel anticipated in the words, your sin is taken away, your guilt is, a, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And as he experiences the grace of God in that moment, everything changed. 
So that at the end of the scene, he's so close to the throne of God that he can hear God, this conversation taking place where God is wondering, well, who's now going to go into the world? Who's going to go represent me? Who's going to go proclaim my holiness and my glory and my grace? And Isaiah, having experienced the grace of God in his own life, he instinctively says, here am I, send me, sign me up. I want to go for you. And yes, in the very next passage, God says, now it's not going to be easy. People aren't going to listen to you. It may take many, many messages before somebody accepts your invitation to the Cheesecake Factory, so to speak. But you're going to go and you're going to do because you've experienced my grace in such a life-changing way. You want your joy to be completed seeing others participating in it. You want others to come to know the God of grace and the God of glory and the God of holiness. So as we think about who we are as a church, as we think about this vision of God, that this idea of worship, we want to recognize that there is an inseparable link between the worship of our lives and the mission of our lives. Our worship of God is what fuels our mission. You can never put a wedge between the worship of your life and the mission of your life. Worship always fuels mission. Worship always results in an instinctive, I want to go, I want to represent, I want to serve, I want to be, I want to do, I want to be about what you are about. And all in an effort to see other people come to know the joy that you and I have in Jesus. To come to know the salvation that you and I have in Jesus. We want others to experience that. To find our joy complete in their joy. So this inseparable link between worship and mission is present there in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's present all throughout the Bible. Worship and mission. So much so that you come to the end of the Gospels. Say Matthew chapter 28 for example. After Jesus lived his life and he died his death and he rose from the grave. What happens? He gathers his disciples, his followers. And it says, as they're gathered there with Jesus, they begin to worship him. They start worshiping the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus instructs them about where their lives are heading. He goes, okay, now I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Teaching people to observe the things that I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want you to lead others into the white hot enjoyment of God. And that's exactly what the disciples would be equipped and empowered to do. Worship and mission there in Matthew chapter 28. But there was still one thing lacking in the disciples' lives. So Jesus would also tell them, okay, now I want you to just kind of wait a little bit. I want you to go and pray and hang out because you're going to need some help on this journey. You're going to need some help on this mission. And so the disciples, the story of the scriptures move on to the book of Acts. And you find the disciples, the early church, gathered together, waiting for this helper to come. And they gather together and they pray and they're wanting to go and make disciples. They're wanting their worship to fuel the mission of their lives. And, and so they start praying. And then what happens? Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. God sends the Holy Spirit down and, and he appears on all the disciples in the room and as the flaming tongues of fire just hovering above all of their heads as, as the Holy Spirit is given to them so that they might go and make much of Jesus. So they might participate in the mission of God in this world. And the story of Acts would unfold seeing men and women being used by God in a variety of ways full of the Holy Spirit, their worship fueling their mission. And one of my favorite stories that exemplifies that is found in Acts chapter 8. Here in Acts chapter 8, this is exactly what you see happening. A guy named Philip is used by God 
to bring and to introduce an Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. Worship compelled him on mission. That mission, that ministry, that conversation that takes place where the Ethiopian eunuch's like, yes, I want to identify with Jesus, then brought it full circle. His worship led to mission, which led to what? More worship. Worship fuels mission. Mission results in more worship. This is what we're about as the Hallows Church faith family. So let's look at the story, Acts chapter 8. We're going to see a few things that are significant and I think helpful for us as we think about this dynamic of mission, of multiplying the gospel, of making disciples. You're going to see three themes in particular, just kind of merging together. You're going to see an emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to see an emphasis on the power of community in this. And you're going to see an emphasis on the power of the gospel. You're introduced in verse 26 to a guy named Philip. And the reason why I like this story so much is because Philip is just an ordinary guy. Philip was not one of the apostles. He wasn't Peter. He wasn't James. He wasn't John. He wasn't one of the 12 that walked with Jesus every day for three years. This is a different guy. This is an ordinary guy. But yet he's the one who's front and center being used by God in this moment. And we're first introduced to Philip in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, Philip is described as a disciple who is full of the Holy Spirit. So the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed in this guy's life because the Holy Spirit inhabited the disciple. The Holy Spirit is at work in Philip. He's inhabiting him. He's leading him. He's guiding him in this moment. And again, be encouraged. Philip was an ordinary disciple. He wasn't a professional minister. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a a pastor, so to speak. He was an ordinary disciple full of the same spirit that inhabited Peter and James and John, who would come to inhabit Paul, Philip, full of the same spirit, being used in similar ways. It's a remarkable thing that Philip wasn't a member of some special forces unit, some special spiritual team. He's just an ordinary guy inhabited by the spirit, and he's going forth to make disciples. And one of the things I love about this story is that there in verse 26, the angel of the Lord appears to him and he says, okay, I want you to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Interesting detail. We'll come back to it in a moment. But the reason why that is significant in my mind is because if you look up earlier in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, look at verses 4 through 8. Philip there, again, full of the Holy Spirit, is sharing the gospel with a large crowd of people in Samaria. And God is at work in that city. God begins to move. Many people are putting their faith in Jesus. Lives are being changed. It's a happening scene. It's the type of movement you would want to be a part of as as a follower of Jesus. You want to see this type of thing going down in any city, in any context. Well, Philip's right there in the middle of it. And it goes on in verse 8 so that it ends saying there was much joy in that city. So Philip is in a prosperous place. There's a lot of joy in that city. Things are happening. The crowds are there. They're meeting Jesus. But then you get to verse 26 and what happens? Full of the Holy Spirit, an angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, now I want you to go somewhere else. And the place you're going isn't nearly as fancy as the place you're leaving. The place you're going isn't full of crowds. The place you're going, he'll find there to be one person. 
One person that he's going to engage with the gospel, one person he's going to engage in conversation, one person he's going to see Jesus do something ridiculously transforming in his life, he's, he's going to experience that. But in order for him to go, Philip had to come to a point where he'd be willing to abandon a place of prosperity and step into the potential of obscurity He has to be willing to leave the city and go to the desert. He has to be willing to leave the crowd to get to the individual. But since the Holy Spirit's inhabiting Philip, Philip is ready and willing to go. This is what I love about Philip. He'll go anywhere. He'll do anything. He's not not chasing crowds. He's chasing persons. He wants to be where God is at work. God was at work in Samaria, but now God is going to be at work in the desert in the life of one Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip is willing to go. It's a fascinating humility that he displays. Philip's life is a blank check. Philip's life is, God, do with me what you will. If it means leaving the city and going to the desert, that's what I'll do. And he leaves his comfort zone. He goes out to this place to meet with this guy. And you're wondering, well, why would the Holy Spirit lead Philip away from the city where a lot's happening to the desert? Well, one of the things you've got to understand about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke, the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. Luke is, uh, the gospel of Luke is, say, volume one. Acts is volume two, all written by the same author, the same, the same leader in the church who wrote and is responsible for those two volumes. And they come together to tell the story of Jesus, and then they tell the story of Jesus' people. And there's some continuity that is shared between Luke and Acts, one of which is the emphasis on the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. You read through the book of Luke, you're going to see a lot of emphasis on how Jesus lived his life inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit led him and empowered him all the days of his ministry. Then you get in the book of Acts, and and the disciples, the church, receive the same spirit who is now going to lead the church, who's now going to empower the church, who's going to inhabit the church, and this is what Philip is doing. So the reason why I think Philip is willing to leave the city and go to the desert place, lead the crowd to get to the individual, is because the same spirit that inhabited Christ is now inhabiting him. There's a parable in Luke chapter 15 that pictures this. Luke chapter 15, Jesus would make this statement, showing the heart of God in all of this. He says, what man, of, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? There's 99 sheep in Samaria, but there's one in the desert, and God is telling Philip, go get him. And there's an incredible picture there of the passion of God for the person. The heart of God for the individual. There's not a single individual whose name doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. There's not a single individual who's not valued in the eyes of God. And when God tells his people to go, we go. Because there are sheep that need to be found. And this is precisely what's happening. So full of the Holy Spirit, Philip leaves the 99 in the city. And he goes after the one lost sheep until he finds this Ethiopian eunuch. But before we dive into who that is, let me ask you, do you really want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Do you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you're trusting in Jesus, yes, you have the Holy Spirit. And, but there's a sense in which 
Some of us may be grieving the Holy Spirit in our lives because if we're really full of the Holy Spirit, then we must recognize that if he's gonna lead us through this world, the Holy Spirit always leads to needs. He always leads to needs. So if you're wondering, well, is the Holy Spirit leading my life? Is he guiding my life? Well, look in front of you and see what needs are apparent. What needs are you meeting? What, whose lives are you loving? Who, what, what people are you serving? How are you talking about Jesus? How are you discipling others? And if you can't answer that question, chances are you're not following the leadership or the impulse or the impression of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always leads to needs. And so if we're going to be full of him, we need to be willing to go and do whatever he, wherever he tells us to go and do whatever he tells us to do, even if it's not glamorous. Philip is leaving a glamorous moment in Samaria, and he's going to the desert. It's a fascinating humility. But then you get to verse 27. He gets to, he arrives there and And it says, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So he meets this guy who's a foreigner, who's not a Jewish person. He's an Ethiopian. He's a member of a different culture. He's a different race. He's he's a person who, in his home country, holds a high position. He's a court official for the queen. He works in the queen's chambers. He's You might describe him as a finance minister, so he's highly educated. He's highly successful and, and Philip meets him there. And then it says in verse 29, well, he's he's reading the book of Isaiah in 28, then you get to verse 29, and then it says, and the Spirit said to Philip, now go over and join this chariot. That's remarkable, right? Well, what do you think the Holy Spirit's voice sounded like? Something like Morgan Freeman? You know, kind of came across, go go to this guy, and he's going. He runs towards this chariot. He knows the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. Because not only is the Holy Spirit inhabiting the disciple, the Holy Spirit is arranging the encounter. And he's speaking in a way that we might interpret as being supernatural or overtly dramatic when he's leading Philip into this encounter to engage this guy with the gospel. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel because sometimes we, we hear these types of stories and we think, well, uh, that seems subjective. How do you know when the Holy Spirit's really speaking? How do you know when the Holy Spirit's leading you? And, And there are some of you, perhaps, who have a very high view of the Bible, a very high view of the Scriptures, and you think, well, if I have a high view of the Bible and the Scriptures, then aren't the Scriptures sufficient? Do I I really need impressions? Does the Holy Spirit still lead in these dynamic kind of ways like he's doing in Philip's life? And to speak into that, I would invite you to hear the words of a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll share why in a moment. But here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this passage. He says, Here is a most extraordinary subject, and indeed a very fascinating one, and from many angles, a most glorious one. There is no question but that God's people can look for and expect leadings, guidance, indications of what they are meant to do. There are many examples of this in the scriptures. Philip was told by the angel of the Lord, arise and go. So he arose and went. Now there are leadings such as that. And if you read the history of the church, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, these extraordinary moments where God seems to do something noticeable, you will find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. People have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny such a possibility, we are again, get this, guilty of quenching The Spirit. Quenching the Spirit if we deny even the possibility of the Holy Spirit dynamically leading his people in these kinds of ways. 
Now, the reason why that's significant is because Martin Lloyd-Jones would never have been mistaken as a crazy charismatic. He wasn't a guy who people would look at and say, that guy, he's always talking about the Holy Spirit speaking to him, and some of the things he seems to hear from the Spirit are bizarre and crazy. Some of them, he, he would never be accused of that. No one could hold a higher view of the scriptures than Martin Lloyd-Jones did. But yet Lloyd-Jones, this British pastor in the first half of the 20th century, he affirms the dynamic leadings and impressions and guidance of the Spirit. And I think you and I would be foolish not to affirm them as well. Now, that doesn't mean we turn our backs on the Bible by no means. It means we read the Bible and we see how the Spirit leads his people in the book of Acts. And we say, okay, the Holy Spirit must be at work today still too. And so we want him to lead and to guide us as well. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to assume, well, the Holy Spirit is only leading and guiding if that leading and guidance comes in a, an overtly dramatic fashion. Anytime God is at work, it's supernatural activity. Anytime. Anytime God's involved, it's supernatural by definition. So we want to assume that and hold on to that and recognize that when God is involved, sometimes he works through overt displays of power. And sometimes he works through subtle acts of providence. It's both and in the ways of God and is both and in our lives and it is both and in our church. Sometimes it's overtly dramatic when God speaks and he does something dynamic in real time for the good of people. Sometimes it's just subtly arranging a circumstance so that people can be cared for in his providence. But both are supernatural because both are led by God or both are engaged by God. And so we want to hold that perspective in our minds because it kind of takes the pressure off of thinking, well, am I being led by the Holy Spirit if I'm not hearing voices or if I'm not really feeling strongly about something? It takes the pressure off of that. And we think, well, God is always at work. He's inhabiting us. And, and we can trust that whatever moment we're in, we can live to the hilt any situation we believe to be the will of God. And if you are breathing today, you are breathing as a result of the will of God for your life. And if you are having conversations with people today, you can rest assured you're having conversations according to the will of God. Take advantage of them. Use them. Approach those conversations as a follower of Jesus, inhabited by the Holy Spirit who arranges encounters between God's people and those who are not yet God's people, between those who know Jesus and those who do not yet know Jesus. We will always want to be sensitive to what's happening around us. We don't want to be enslaved to a particular form. We want to walk by faith, trusting in a God whose spirit inhabits all of those who are trusting in the gospel, who's always arranging things for you and I to engage people to love, people to serve, people to share the gospel with. So when he shows up, he gets there, and, and this Ethiopian eunuch is, is hanging out, and Philip runs to him, and he hears him reading. Get this in verse 30. Philip runs to him, and he hears this guy reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, the Holy Spirit, yes, the power of the Spirit, inhabiting the disciple, arranging the account, encounter, but you also have to see that the Holy Spirit actually beat Philip to the scene. The Holy Spirit is already at work in the Ethiopian's life. Why? Because he's reading the scriptures. 
He's reading the book of Isaiah. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. He, he has the scriptures in front of him. He's a wealthy man, so he could afford this type of scroll. He's an educated man, so he could read this type of document, and he's got it there before him. And, and because of that, you know the Holy Spirit's at work in that moment because the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures that he's reading. So you have a disciple full of the Holy Spirit. You have a circumstance that's being arranged according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the scriptures, this passage that he's reading that was given to him ultimately by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's all over this scene. He's quarterbacking the entire moment, just like he's quarterbacking the mission of God today, working in us, working around us, and then working through the scriptures that he's given to us as the church. So you see this dynamic. He's reading the scriptures. And then there's a series of questions that draw us into the power of community. It says in verse 30, after Philip ran to him and he hears him reading this, then listen to what Philip asks him. He gets up in the chariot. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The power of community displayed in that moment. It's, it's a remarkable picture. This guy's reading the scriptures. He doesn't understand them. So God provided Philip to explain them. And we find a wonderful picture of the role of the scriptures as it relates to the power of community in our lives. In community, we are to study the scriptures, right? This is what's happening here. Philip and the Ethiopians sitting down together and studying the scriptures. And that's an important dynamic for us to understand because we're Americans. And as Americans, we are so individualistic. We are so private. There was a big shift that happened when when you think back on church history. Leading up to the Reformation in the 16th century, um, the Bible wasn't available to people. Disciples didn't have the Bible at their disposal for a variety of reasons. And the ruling authorities in the church weren't quick to translate the Bible so that average people could read the Bible. So the Bible was in a language that the vast majority of people couldn't understand and they were dependent upon preachers and teachers in pulpits to explain. And what was unique about that setting for a long time, they, they would illustrate how the, church, how the Bible belonged to the church by literally chaining the Bible to the pulpit. So Bibles in churches were, were chained to the pulpit. But then the Reformation came, and the Reformation was governed by this desire. No, we've got to get the Scriptures into the hands of men and women. We need every disciple studying the Scriptures, and we need to get back to the way life was working in the first four centuries of the church. And so the Reformation made that call, and what happened was, it was as though they took an instrument and just broke the chain. They detached the Bible from the pulpit, and they began to dispense it. To ordinary people. The Bible was translated in other languages and it was made available through the printing press and all those types of things. But then history would move on and people came to America and they settled our country, they settled our they established our culture, and we began to grow, and Christianity kind of spread fairly rapidly and widely in our context. But what happened was this individualized spirit that marked the founding of our country, individual liberty personal privacy, these values, that spilled over into how disciples approached their relationship with God and it spilled over to how disciples studied the Bible. So the pendulum shifted from pre-Reformation, Bible chained to the pulpit to another extreme so that we maybe have, we broke the chain, but then we took the Bible and ran into the closet. 
And the Christian life was boiled down to a me, myself, and Jesus type of faith. And a disciple then would only grow as a disciple if they were engaging in what you've probably heard called a private, personal, quiet time. And so Bible study for disciples would happen ordinarily in private. Just you and Jesus, you and the Bible. And so the pendulum moves from the pulpit to the closet, and I think that's dangerous. I don't think that's what God intended for the scriptures when the scriptures became widely available after the Reformation. The scriptures are intended to ordinarily be studied in the context of community. Your relationship with Jesus isn't just about you and your relationship with Jesus. Your interaction with the scriptures isn't just about you and your interactions with the scriptures. The scriptures are to be studied in the context of community. So we don't want to run into the closet and just read our Bibles there. No, we want to go to the dinner table, open the Bible, and read it there with others. We study the scriptures in the context of community because community also gives us an opportunity to wrestle with the scriptures. We're able to talk about the rub of the scriptures when we read something that we don't understand or we read something that we are confused by. Community helps us flush that out. Community helps us work through those things. Isn't this what happens in the story? The Ethiopian eunuch and Philip are sitting together and they're studying the scriptures. Then you look at verse 34. Then the eunuch says, I don't understand this passage that I'm reading. About whom I ask you? Does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Help me understand it. So he's wrestling. And because he's wrestling, and understand that when he wrestles with the scriptures in that moment, he is showing incredible vulnerability. He's a highly educated man. So for him to admit that he doesn't understand something is a big step. And I'm wondering if some of you, you're, you're not getting the most out of your study of the scriptures is because you're not willing to admit, I don't understand this. And you're not asking any questions about what you're reading. You're not studying the scriptures in the context of community. Perhaps because you, you feel embarrassed if you don't feel like you know as much as everybody else. But if we're going to be a church who gives ourselves to the study of the scriptures together, we have to create an environment where people can be vulnerable about what they're wrestling with. If we don't understand, if you don't understand something, ask. Talk to other members of your missional community. Talk to myself. Talk to others. Ask questions. Wrestle with the scriptures together. Because only when you're willing to do that will clarity come. So we study the scriptures in community. We wrestle with the scriptures in community. And then we're able to find clarity. We're able to clarify the scriptures together. This is exactly what Philip does for him. He asks this question. He's wrestling with this obscure passage from Isaiah. And then Philip, verse 35, opens his mouth and begins with this scripture. And he told him the good news about Jesus. That's a beautiful description. Clarity comes when, we, when our study of the Bible leads us to Jesus. If your Bible study doesn't end with Jesus, you're not studying the Bible. If your Bible study doesn't draw you to Christ so that you're thinking about all that God is for you in Jesus, then you're not understanding the Bible. You're not studying it. You're not wrestling with it. And it's certainly not being clarified. All of our Bible study must lead us to Jesus. This is the picture here. This is the pattern here. And it's a picture and a pattern that's not only found here. Remember, Acts is connected to Luke. And at the end of Luke's gospel, you have another situation where there are two disciples who are sad and discouraged because Jesus has died. 
and they haven't learned that he's risen. And so they're confused, they're downtrodden, and they're on this road walking uh, towards a place called Emmaus. And then this mysterious figure, who we later discover is the resurrected Jesus, shows up on the road in a mysterious way, similar to how Philip shows up in the Ethiopian's life. And this mysterious figure walks with them on this road, and it says in Luke chapter 24 that they begin to, that this guy took the Old Testament, and he began to teach from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms, and show these two guys all the things that the scriptures talked about as it related to him, as it related to Jesus. And when they discovered Jesus in the scriptures, that's when they perked up. That's when hope was installed. So anytime we're studying the scriptures, our study of the scriptures must lead us to Jesus. Otherwise, we're we're not studying the scriptures. We're not wrestling with them. We're not following them to their intended end. So let me just say this. Some of you are studying the Bible, perhaps in the context of the academy. And I would say if your study of the Bible is happening only in the context or even primarily in the context of the academy, you're not studying the Bible in the context where it was intended. The scriptures belong to the church. So the primary and ordinary place for you to study the scriptures and to discover the meaning of the scriptures and to find Jesus in the scriptures has to be in the context of a believing faith family, a believing faith community. Some of you have gotten into situations where you're only studying the Bible in the academy or you're only studying the Bible in some other theoretical realm, not in the real life grit and grind of flesh and bone relationships, and it's destroying you. It's strangling life out of your soul. And and my hope as a pastor is that you would wake up and recognize the gift that the scriptures are, but recognize the gift that the scriptures are to the church. The Bible is to be studied primarily and ordinarily here. And I say that as a guy who's been in the academy. I've done a lot of formal education. I've gone as far as I can in that. And I assure you, my soul has been more enriched when I'm studying the scriptures in the context of a faith community full of people who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit than it's ever been in the academy. And in the academy, I've been served well by faithful men and women who love Jesus, but there's still a different dynamic to studying it in a school versus studying the Bible in a church. And so let me encourage you, engage the academy, study the scriptures in those worlds if you're running in them now, but don't let that be the primary and ordinary way in which you engage the scriptures. We are to study the scriptures in the context of community. We We are to wrestle with the scriptures together. And as we do so, we're going to find clarity as as we point one another to Jesus, reminding each other that the point of the Bible is to lead people to faith and formation in Christ. And so that's what we want to go after as a church. And this is ultimately what goes down in this Ethiopian eunuch's life. The Philip opens his mouth and he tells him the good news about Jesus. And then what happens? Verse 36, we find response. Because we respond to Jesus when we see him in the Bible. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came, to, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I want in on that. I want to identify with Jesus. I, I, take me into the water. I, I want in on Jesus. And so Philip was glad to oblige. And he baptized him right there on the side of the road. That's response. We study the scriptures, we wrestle with the scriptures, we clarify the scriptures, and ultimately we respond to the scriptures in the context of community. And that's when life change begins to happen. 
There's a story I love that illustrates this dynamic. I've shared with this with some of you before, and I think it's worth sharing again. But there's a guy by the name of Ian Pitt Watson who, when he was 14 years old, he couldn't dance. He was awkward and uncoordinated, and as a result, he felt alienated from certain social benefits related to dancing. So he decided to fix his situation. So what did he do? He went and bought a book. He went and bought a book, Teach Yourself to Dance. He went home and he read the book. He studied the diagrams and all the detailed instructions related to dancing found in the book. And he learned them. He memorized them. And then he began to practice every day in front of a mirror with a pillow for a partner. And this was his experience. Eventually, he grew frustrated. He said, it got to the point where I really knew the book. Intellectually, I had mastered the subject. I also spent many hours trying to put what I knew into practice. I did so alone in my bedroom using a pillow for a partner and studying my progress in the wardrobe mirror. What I saw in the mirror was not reassuring. I was putting my feet in all the right places, for I knew the book. And I was doing what the book said, but something was clearly missing. I was thinking the right things and doing the right things, but I couldn't get the feel of it. And in consequence, everything I did seemed clumsy and graceless. But then one night, he attended a party. And soon after arriving at the party, he caught a girl's eye, and this girl wandered over to him and asked him to dance. He kind of blushed. He wasn't sure he could go and roll with everybody else because he's only used to dancing with a pillow in front of a mirror. But he found this girl to be irresistible. He responded to her invitation, followed her gingerly out onto the dance floor. And when he stepped out onto the dance floor with another person, something changed, something happened. This is what he said. He says, then in that moment, something strange happened to me. A little of her grace seemed to pass to me and I began to get the feel of it. For the first time, all I had learned in the book began to make sense and even the painful practice in front of the mirror started to pay off. What had been contrived now became natural. What had been difficult now became easy. What had been a burden now became a joy because at last I had got together what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what I was doing. In that moment, I experienced a kind of grace and it was beautiful. If you're approaching the Christian life and if you're approaching the study of scriptures in an individualistic fashion, you're gonna live a clumsy and graceless Christian life. There is power in community. There is power when you step into relationship with other disciples who are full of the Holy Spirit, who have the same scriptures that you have at your disposal, and you begin to study them in, the con- in that context. And when you do, you're going to find grace and beauty flowing from other people and into your life as you revel in the scriptures together. This is how life change happens. This is the heart of our mission as we study the scriptures together and what that does in us and then what that leads us to do for others as we worship our God and as we serve our God, as we magnify the gospel and as we multiply the gospel. So let's try to do a bit of that now. We, you want to clarify the scriptures. You want to study the Bible so that it ends with a focus on Jesus. So let me give you a, a little glimpse on how that happens in this text. So just pan back from the passage for a moment and what you begin to see now is the power of the gospel. You see the power of the gospel displayed in this passage and it's seen in what happens in the Ethiopian's life. But it is seen in what happens before Philip even meets up with the Ethiopian. See, what you see in the example of the Ethiopian eunuch is how our souls thirst for God. 
There is a thirst for God that is at work in his soul, that is at work in his life. Again, think about who he is. He had a great job. He was highly educated. He had all the money he could have. I mean, he served the queen in Ethiopia, but he was still thirsty. Highly educated, highly successful, still thirsty. And you notice where this story takes place. It happens in the desert. And I think that detail is there to describe or to give us a picture of what's going on in the Ethiopian's life. The desert place is indicative of his dry soul. He's thirsting for God. That's why he went to Jerusalem in the first place, traveling 1,600 miles to get to the temple so that he could connect with the Creator, so that he could meet the God of Israel. So he's traveled all of this way, thirsting for God, hoping to connect with the Creator, moving to see this thirst satisfied. But do you know what probably happened when he arrived in Jerusalem? He gets to Jerusalem, he walks up to the temple, and there, hanging on the wall, was a sign. And this is fact. Archaeologists, church historians, this is fact. There was a sign hanging on the temple that said this. It said, no lame, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter. Chances are, when he arrived at the temple, he was turned away and cut off. Chances are, when he arrived at the temple to connect to God, connect with God, he could only go so far but no further. And as a result, he left dry. Therefore, this whole story takes place in the desert. This is a man who had everything, but he doesn't have anything. And when he goes to the temple to find God, he can't find him because there's this sign. No lame, no blind, no eunuchs may enter. And then at that moment, you begin to see how the desert of shame began to perhaps swell up in his soul. I mean, to be a eunuch, there's only a couple of ways you can become a eunuch. If it didn't happen at birth, it happened by choice later. And it wasn't uncommon for a person to choose to become a eunuch, especially if they idolized ambition, especially if they wanted to be in the service of the queen. So if he wanted that position, it's possible that at some point in time in his life, he made the conscious decision to become a eunuch so that he could have this job and serve the queen in this capacity. So you can imagine the regret and the shame that he feels thinking, well, maybe I went to the temple and I couldn't go in because I made this decision at some point in time in my life and now I'm feeling the shame of that. I'm feeling the remorse of that. I wanted to connect with the creator and, and I can't. I'm turned away. I'm cut off and I'm cut off due to my own conscious decision. So you have regret swelling up in him and then you have guilt swelling up in him as he's starting to feel guilty perhaps of, of his decisions, of things he's done in the past to get to where he is and now he feels like he's cut himself off from the creator of the universe. All of this swelling up within him and it's in that setting where God says to Philip, go meet with this guy. He thinks he's cut off. He thinks he has no hope. I want you to go tell him otherwise. So this disciple goes and meets with the Ethiopian eunuch and this is where you begin to see the good news about Jesus because you have this guy thirsting for God who's plagued with shame and guilt and then this guy Philip shows up and he shares with him the gospel. And he sits down with him and they begin to read the prophet Isaiah. And they begin to discover the gospel in that moment. And you look at the passage there in Acts chapter 8. You, you have this passage that talks about the silence of Jesus. How Jesus opened not his mouth. And perhaps Philip took that opportunity to explain to the eunuch, you know, this story isn't about Isaiah. This story is about Jesus. And there was a moment when Jesus was on trial and he was standing before Pilate. And when he was on trial, he didn't defend himself. He was innocent, but he didn't speak up and defend himself to Pilate. And 
the Ethiopian might have asked, well, if he wasn't silent, then what happened? And Philip would then look at the Ethiopian and say, well, his silence means that he was conceding guilt. And then the Ethiopian asking, well, I thought you said he was innocent. Whose guilt was he conceding? And then Philip would say he was conceding yours. Jesus was silent before Pilate, conceding not his guilt, but conceding our guilt, explaining all of this from the book of Isaiah. And then he would go on to say, and because he conceded our guilt, he was then able and willing to take our place. Again, he would see this in Isaiah 53, that scroll that is open before him. He would perhaps look up a little further in the passage and point out Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Where he would read these words, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Jesus stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But Jesus was wounded for what? Wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. So they're studying Isaiah and he's saying, look, Jesus conceded our guilt and then he took our place. He went to the cross and died for us. And so the Ethiopian's like, okay, that sounds really good, but what does that mean for me? I got to the temple and I couldn't enter. Did anything change after Christ was crucified and risen? And you can imagine Philip then taking the Ethiopian and leading him further into the book of Isaiah, getting all the way to Isaiah chapter 56 and reading these words. Reading these words, Isaiah 56 verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Behold, I am a deserted soul. Behold, I am someone cut off from the creator. Let not the eunuch say that. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, bringing them in, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be what? That shall not be cut off. And maybe they're talking through these things. And as they are, something begins to register. He begins to taste the grace of God. And things begin to explode within him so much that he's saying, if that's true, I want in. I want to identify with Jesus. Baptize me here. Baptize me now. You're telling me that I am no longer cut off because Jesus was cut off for me? And the moment that registered within his soul, his shame began to dissolve. His guilt began to fall to the wayside. Jesus began to remove that which was hindering him and strangling his soul in the desert. And as, as Philip explained, these dynamic gospel realities, things begin to change in this guy's life. And it says at the end of the story, he left rejoicing. He left worshiping. He worshiped Jesus and left. Now church history says and suggests that The church in Ethiopia was started as a result of an Ethiopian eunuch who met Jesus in the desert and showed up and began to tell everybody about this this Jesus who was crucified and risen so that foreigners could be brought in, so that eunuchs could be restored, so that sinners could be saved. And the church would explode in Ethiopia. And if you talk to an Ethiopian Christian right now and you ask them about the history of the church in their country, in their culture, in their context, they're going to trace their lineage back to this guy who worshiped Jesus and then instinctively went home and began to tell others about Jesus. Worship fuels mission and mission results in more worship. This is why we say we are a worshiping missional community called the Hallows Church. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we think about these things? I pray that you would help us to know how we are to respond in ways that would honor you and would help one another and help those around us in this city. Father, I pray that you would make us a vibrant people who magnify and multiply the gospel through Seattle to the ends of the earth. We want the worship that is taking root in our hearts and is consuming our lives to spill over into the mission of our lives as we seek to follow your leading into this city, follow your leading into our relationships and to be used by you to to show people Jesus from the scriptures in relationships so that lives can share in the joy that we have in Jesus. God, we ask and we pray for you to do that, for only you can, in Jesus' name, amen.